Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. You think about it, we're really pulling from the playbook of, you know, of nature here to address these problems, you know, and carbon's got a definite PR problem with very good reason, but, you know, we're also carbon-based life forms, and so there's an entire carbon cycle that's an inherent part of activity and, and life and what have you. And so that's sort of a fabric in the whole, you know, value chain of insects, you know, how they can bring a ton of efficiency without external energy required and, and harnessing their management in that particular area. But yeah, more broadly in terms of the value, you've got hundreds of millions of years of evolution at work here. All right, Michael, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Nick. Great to be with you. Yeah, so I'm very excited to talk about the wonderful world of bugs and insects and all of that today. Why don't we get folks up to speed a little bit on your career journey, if you will? How did you get to the place where you are today, ready to scale insect farming in the U.S.? Well, I think it really started 30 years ago for me. You know, I used to be super overweight. A lot of the issues we talk about today, I was a 300-pound teenager and had a, a rather abrupt transformation that it didn't change my, you know, vocational pursuits or what have you. I actually went into digital technology mm. and spent a couple of decades there, but it made me constant, you know, food aware all the way through sustainability, nutrient density, these sort of deeper topics, you know, beyond organic, if you will, because I really paid close attention, treated my food as my doctor going back to, uh, you know, this whole episode. So, had a uh, was a gardener and a, a beekeeper and a composter <laughs> and all these types of things. And then about a dozen years ago, my compost pile was invaded <laughs> by a very industrious insect that I now have spent the last, uh, well, I've spent that entire time working with them, but the last seven years as an entrepreneur, uh, helping to pioneer this industry. And I became obsessed almost overnight. You know, you just found out that my compost essentially disappeared and, you know, this bug was in there and I'm, I'm trying to understand it, but and there was already enough information out there for me to piece together what had happened. And I built a DIY unit, started breeding them in my basement, started breeding them through the winter. And um, it happens to a lot of folks. It's a pretty remarkable mind shift when you suddenly realize what they can do mm. and what their value is. And I let that percolate for a while and then went all in back in 2015. Nice. Yeah. So it's been a wild journey, but it feels to me like something, it was more like putting my money where my mouth was. Yeah, I used to be kind of, you know, turned off by all the waste in, in software and worked around the globe, had a, a nice life out of the whole experience, but didn't feel super connected other than the human side to my work. And this was just something that I really knew that I could make my life about. And I just aligned so incredibly with my values and it's such a great problem solver. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to go out and uh, make sure it didn't get screwed up. Yeah. Talk about getting your hands dirty, going from software to the compost pile. Uh, what's the bug that we get to talk about a decent amount today? The black soldier fly. Good name. Hermatia elucens. Yeah. The, the clunky name is Hermatia elucens uh, in the diptera line. And it's, you know, it's a fly, which immediately creates a lot of connotations for people, but it's almost a perfect opposite for everything everyone knows about the most infamous fly. It's a, not a disease vector. It doesn't have mouth parts, doesn't eat as an adult, <laughs> not very interested in humans of any, you know, at any level. So it's not a pest. It's actually quite the opposite, but they do share uh, 
some genetic lineage there. But yeah, the black soldier fly, the mighty black soldier fly. Yeah, not interested in humans, but we're certainly increasingly interested in it. Before we talk about the work that you're doing at Chapel Farms, would love to set up this conversation with, I think you have a really unique perspective on all of the potential value that greater cultivation and interaction with insects could offer to humans. And I think that maps well to when we used to think about climate technology, there was a pretty narrow focus, not narrow, but 20 years ago, it was really all about clean energy, clean electrons. And now climate tech has expanded a lot to recognize it's really this nested challenge of almost every, you know, seam or fabric component of society that's touched by fossil fuels in some way. And I think insects can offer a lot of solutions across a spectrum of those challenges. Maybe let's start by outlining kind of some of the different areas where there's a big opportunity to use insects more, and then we can winnow down and talk about the work that you're doing today. Absolutely. Well, you know, if you think about it, we're really pulling from the playbook of, you know, of nature here to address these problems, you know, and Carbon's got a definite PR problem with very good reason, but, you know, we're also carbon-based life forms. And so there's an entire carbon cycle that's an inherent part of activity and, and life and what have you. And so that's sort of a fabric in the whole, you know, value chain of insects, you know, how they can bring a ton of efficiency without external energy required and, and harnessing their management in that particular area. But yeah, more broadly in terms of the value You've got hundreds of millions of years of evolution at work here. And if you think about, you know, the soil that we rely on, that's largely the byproduct of insects. They're massively successful animal species that, you know, we've got a, a sketchy relationship with in some ways, and there's a lot of history there. But they've also been a staple protein. Research tells us now going back in hominids for five or six million years, they've been more consistent than the big game we associate with eating. And that's, you know, a whole thread in terms of human value there and consumption. But more broadly, animals, fish, birds, you know, certainly poultry, the commercially relevant ones have been eating them in an evolutionary context forever. And so there's a lot of sort of it's almost like an aha moment when you think about it, right? We feed 1.2 billion tons of compound feed to animals around mm. the world. And most of that is been optimized for low cost mass production. Some of it even contains things like anti-nutrients, right? So you get your bulk and then you're trying to squeeze in the constituents of what keeps an animal viable to bridge the gap of the cheap stuff you work with. And here you have a premium pristine food that's a natural fit for almost every species that you can imagine that we feed commercial feed. Yeah. The bonuses that it can take out the garbage. You know, we've got 30% of our landfills, the largest input to the U.S. landfills in 2023 and for many years is food waste. Got it, yeah. And so commingling this, tossing it into a pile where it becomes a contaminated toxic pile at a methane volcano... <laughs> you know, why not feed this to insects right. and get really valuable commodities out the other end? At, at the superficial level, it's almost too good to be true. And that's, you know, part of the, that's sort of the core value proposition is that we can take low value materials and produce really high demand, intense, you know, vast markets yeah. of valuable protein. And then also biofertilizer, which is used to be the also ran for us. <laughs> But it's really emerging as this extraordinary benefit to the whole soil health movement and getting away from petrochemical fertilizers as well. Yeah, very interesting. I'm glad 
to an extent that we already located the conversation a bit on kind of like the feed side because, you know, so many people get bogged down in this like, will you eat the bugs question? But I think it's really, you know, feed is number one line item cost wise for livestock farmers in the US as an example. I mean, you can pull out all kinds of different stats here. Like if you think about pets also like protein, if pets in the US were their own country, I think there's a stat like they'd be the number five biggest consumer of meat if they kind of constituted a country on their own. So there's a lot of opportunities even if you yourself as a listener are somewhat, you know, quizzical about the concept of eating bugs, like there's a ton of other end markets to go to before that ever even enters the conversation. Absolutely. And no, it's really interesting because I think there's a conflation going on there. And, you know, the main idea is absolutely, you know, that the bigger opportunity, you know, here is feeding animals. And, but this whole conflation I'm talking about, you know, you do have a lot of products being created right now because of the protein crunch, as the UN dubbed it, I think, you know, a dozen years ago. Aquaculture, for example, considered sustainable, scalable protein. What's the number one industry issue facing their growth and their scalability? Where are they going to get the feed, right? So fish meal is a big source there. So insects fit that niche very, very well. But overall, healthy, viable, quality proteins, hard to come by. So we're producing a lot of synthetic versions of that now. And you've got people who talk about, you know, the plant-based space, which are, you know, effectively, let's just call them processed products. They're complicated. And then you have cellular meat. And those twin areas, it seems like insects have taken home the prize as the poster child for, you know, lab-grown frankenfoods, if you will, <laughs> And the irony and the conflation there is, you know, these are natural, highly appropriate, you know, 2 billion people around the world have been consuming insects without cessation throughout all of human history. People should eat what they want to eat and what makes them uh, healthy and thrive. There's no doubt in the many years of research at what bugs do for animals in terms of huge benefits above lower grade, low quality feeds, even at small inclusion rates. So it's a no brainer, really. I'm interested to talk about the U.S. where you're trying to grow this industry, but maybe let's start with, are there other places in the world, obviously there's places in the world where there's a rich history of humans eating insects, of feeding insects to livestock. Where in the world are there already kind of the richest like industries around some of the work that you're trying to do where it's, it's waste to value via insects? Does that exist elsewhere? Because I know in the U.S. it's certainly really in its infancy, but I imagine elsewhere, maybe there's some roots so it's interesting. It's sort of been a slow burn. And I would say that people would be actually kind of surprised or will be surprised, you know, as the growth continues, how much has really gone on over the last decade. So the U.S. and North America have lagged to some extent. Even here, though, there's a great deal. You know, we have NASIA that we were founding members in 2016. That's the North American Coalition of Insects for Agriculture. Mm. We have the Center for Insect Sustainability or Sustainability Through Insect Farming, SIF, which we launched two years ago, where the industry chairs for a National Science Foundation industry academia research collaboration. Globally, though, to your question, so Asia is absolutely moving very, very quickly. I would say Singapore surging in the last couple of years, but in China, in Malaysia, in Singapore, to some degree in Indonesia, you've got scaled it out. Their model is a bit more labor intensive and aiming for a little bit lower tech. Mm. And it's a very versatile system, but they've been moving very, very quickly for some years. South Africa is a, is a pioneering company. We're 
part of our DNA still sits in South Africa. And there's a number of companies there that have done great work. Broadly on the continent, the lower tech model is taking off in Kenya and Rwanda and Tanzania, where we also do work with a nonprofit there, Nigeria on the other side of the continent. Moving up to Europe, definitely out in front of the U.S. Um, yeah. And they've even included insect agriculture in their Green Deal. So they've, and they've, you know, there's been progress here as well, regulatory wise for years, but there's a lot of teeth to what they've managed to anchor into their future plans. Got it. The Dutch government has been highly supportive through their university system and with some capital. Uh, you have operations in Germany for over a decade. France, a uh, leading company uh, in mealworms, so not the insect that we work with, just took in another $125 million two days ago. Yeah, that was insect, right? Spelled with a Y. Exactly. Yeah. So another interesting company. It, it, my brain is heading into mealworms and, <laughs> and Iron Man there. But, but yeah, it's so Europe, I think we're lagging a bit. Europe is very sophisticated, very, um, there's a, the largest operation in the world is in the Netherlands at 300 tons a day of, of wet input materials. And then in Canada, here in North America, we have uh, a couple of companies that have done some at scale work there. And then what I meant before about people being surprised, you know, there's quite a lot of activity here in the US. Companies like, you know, they're at smaller and medium scales. And, um, you know, like Chipotle Farms, but we're actually unique because we have such a long history and we aim to change this lagging situation. But there's quite a bit of activity that's brewing. It's just, you know, there's there's a number of different factors, I think, that have, it's been slow globally, but the utility of this, the importance of it, the focus on, you know, circularity and energy efficiency around everything we do food and agriculture wise is just sort of tipped us over, uh, you know, the ball's rolling downhill now around the world. It's just, yeah. Yeah, a lot of strong catalysts. So yeah, let's dive right into to what Chapool Farms is doing. I'd be curious for you to break down kind of what the pitch is in 60 or 90 seconds, and then we can go a lot deeper. Well, you know, we, we sort of touched on it in a few different areas, right? But the utility of this, it really, the it spans, you know, from your kitchen, some, you know, that's how I got into it, all the way to the farm scale, to industrial scale. And, the, you know, our problems are industrial scale, the lack of sustainability for feed. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, let's say, anchored in appreciation for the growth of bioregional solutions for, you know, no-till, soil health, organic, you know, local. All of these things have sort of been movements over a long period of time. And so out in Oregon, we're on a 700-acre regenerative farm, and that's our research innovation center. And that's also sort of the anchor to that middle tier, maybe say mid-scale development. We're working on a project there that we're building up over time, a lot of interest in the state. But it's also, even if you look at some of the absurdities of how we do it, yeah, it's getting done. And to bring solutions to the 100 million now tons of organics waste, food waste in this country... You have to really be entertaining doing that at scale with 21st century efficiency, even though we're harnessing a biological system driven by the insects. And so that's what we've done. We've partnered up with a really exciting sustainable infrastructure engineering company who's now a partner and they've joined, you know, sort of joined the family, if you will. And so we bring the best of engineering and their sustainability focus to this system that we have to bring it to where we feel it's optimized for, you know, and also to 
make it attractive to investors. You've got to, you know, put together the, the interest level from the market is substantial, but most of them are dealing with scales where they want to see, you know, 10x <laughs> before, you know, of the industry output before they can commit to it. So, yeah, I mean, to speak to the absurdities of waste to a certain extent, I think that's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I'm here in New York City, definitely not faultless as far as contributing to food waste. And, you know, the stuff that I produce gets put on a diesel fired train to be taken down to a landfill in West Virginia or South Carolina. And the food that got wasted took a lot of energy to produce in the first place. There's emissions associated with that. There's an opportunity cost to the food waste. There's emissions associated to the transportation with a diesel fired train. There's emissions in the landfill when it decomposes down into methane and it's taking up space in the landfill. So yeah, no shortage of need to do things differently. Let's paint a picture for folks a little bit of, you know, pick your favorite pilot facility where you're already doing work. But I'd love to kind of illustrate for folks in words, obviously, how the Black Soldier Fly is being used to process waste and what it turns into. So we talked, uh, you know, we introduced the insect. We were talking about flies, but the real, it's a youth culture. So the larvae are really where all the magic happens. And so if you think about either these tiny, tiny larvae and their natural habitat is putrefying waste streams in nature. So what we do is we bring in, you know, think about food waste, think of spent grains, all of these materials, you know, completely viable for them. And then we sort of tweak that a bit. We optimize the particle size and the moisture level so that they are able to go ahead. We put them literally right into the material and then in a process that we now have down to basically a week <laughs> and their full life cycle would be, let's say, a couple of weeks. They devour all this. And by the time they've fed, you know, on this material, there's the larva remaining and there's residual material we call frass, which is their exoskeletons, their own excrement, et cetera. And it looks like something like compost. Mm. And so, you know, effectively, it, we're just giving them, you know, steering and optimizing the waste for them. They love moisture, which is another really powerful element of what they can do because wet waste decomposes faster. Wet waste is hard to transport. And so the fact that they can deal with it is another benefit. But yeah, it's, you know, we breed flies too, right? We have cages where the adults, you know, go in and, and they deposit their eggs. And of course, we harvest those. And then we put them immediately on a specialized diet for the little ones before putting them into the, the large scale, what we call bioconversion units, which is essentially a trade-based system, highly efficient. You know, we optimize a vertical uh, space as well. And we do a lot of work to manage the microclimate, make sure that you know, they do like it warm. They produce a tremendous amount of heat, which is great because that helps us keep our energy costs down. But then monitoring the humidity and the temperature and making sure per life cycle area that it's optimized for them is very, very a big part of what we do to keep everything flowing very efficiently and, and them producing and happy and, and eating. Understood. Yeah. So that's sort of a day in the life of the larva. <laughs> getting to, uh... <laughs> yeah. So they're taking the waste that's essentially feed for them and they're processing it in a way that's much favorable to decomposing in a landfill. And then on the other end of the spectrum, as far as building towards a product that's fit for sale to someone else, I know that we've already talked about that, but just to complete kind of the picture of the value chain, what happens with the insects uh, once they're at maturity and what happens with the frass, for instance? Sure. So they come out and there is already a well-established market for the live larva. 
even going back into the 90s, so specialty pets like reptiles and wild birds, you know, you can additionally target a low energy setup. And if, as long as these are, you know, in close proximity to where they're going to get utilized, the live larvae are a definite market. And again, mainly around the energy footprint and any potential benefit of them being consumed in that sort of natural raw state by various animals, we'll always remain interested in that. But the real markets are with a dried product. And so we can dry them. There's a, there's a very robust market that our market research shows we actually sell into this market here in the United States mm. has doubled in the last few years. But folks like Backyard Chicken, mm. they buy up insects and increasingly black soldier fly in a whole dried form that's highly nutritious, very beneficial for their birds. You know, we could geek out and tell you how it, it creates more protein and creates thicker eggshells and reduces their feather pecking. Like it just gets more and more interesting. But that's a big market, and that's a whole dried larva that we sell into. Now, in the pet market, which we we touched mm -hmm. on, they're very interested in those fats. They have a very rich amount of lauric acids. It's great for the coats of cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. New study actually just hit the web in the last couple of days showing it improves brain function in dogs, again, tying it to the lipids. But there's a lot of interest from aquaculture mm. as they balance their protein and their fat mix in the, in the feed there for a defatted product. So we also remove that fat, sell that off as a different product, and then that defatted meal is sent primarily into aquaculture today, although it's used in other spaces too. Now then the frass, again, can be utilized wet. Lots of variables there in terms of the farming operation, how they are going to land applied, how they're going to utilize it. So primarily for shelf stability and the ability to get it out to market, we dry that product as well. Got it. And then you're really looking at something. Um, yeah, I, I like to use the bat guano reference to help people understand how remarkable this stuff is. It's, uh, it's um, you know, it looks sort of, you know, you wouldn't think about it as insect excrement. It's more like fine compost. That's what I'm saying it looks like. And then that's used for what when the folks that buy that frass, what do they use it to produce? Is that kind of getting into the fertilizer conversation? Well, not just fertilizer, though. And again, I warned you with the too many aces, right? <laughs> you know, because, yes, there's a growth, there's an NPK aspect to it, and it's it's really remarkable in certain settings. But we've got a an award-winning cannabis grower who's been working with our frass for a few years, hmm. and he's used this to essentially eliminate as part of his work to eliminate various things like powdery mildew, hmm. pests that get into these grows. And so if you're familiar with uh, insects and crustaceans have something called chitin in them, which is a, you know, it's a very uh, common biopolymer. It's also in fungi. And so that component of the frass brings, and that's one of these elements, but it brings a ton of antimicrobial, anti-pest benefits. So you have, you know, depending on the crop, you know, potatoes, for example, how we're doing some research on this with the chitin. There's certain bacteria that can harm potatoes. So we don't see a huge yield increase there, like a biofertilizer, but we see yield maintained and a reduction of harmful bacteria that can kill off crops. Got it. Yeah. So, yeah, these are, um, yeah, there's a few well established use cases, but it does vary per grow and depending on the practices of the individual farms, how you utilize it. No, I love it. Multi-solve on the front end in terms of the waste processing, 
and uh, multi-sell on the back end in terms of end product. I'm curious, with the um, co-location of facilities where the waste is, what's the profile of some of those people or companies, I should say, or operations from whom you're, you're taking in the waste? Well, we've got some projects in the middle of the country, in Kentucky and North Dakota. For example, in Kentucky, you've got a bourbon industry that is exploding for many years. I like my Kentucky bourbon too. There you go. (laughs) Well, one of the things that happened is they had a nice relationship being able to get their fed grains, their stillage out the door to local dairy farms, you know, going back decades. But they've long since outstripped their ability to, you know, the local markets are saturated and they have a massive, it's considered to be by the governor's office on all the way through the number one uh, Achilles heel of the industry. And so this is an optimal situation for what we do. It's a very, it's either a high moisture product with spent grains still, still with lots of nutrition in them, which is where we slot in, or some of the well-heeled companies are drying it, but this is an energy huge energy suck. And then they've got a shelf-stable feed product. They still have to find a home for it. Mm. So they're delighted that we can potentially keep on scaling with their growth. Yeah, We see throughout in North Dakota, you've got you know lots of food processing companies, people making food. You've got huge agriculture operations and you've got spent grains coming in from ethanol. Mm. All of these are inputs that we're working with as we speak to keep them from needing to be dried and shipped overseas for, you know, to be sold for feed. So again, you've got about a 48-hour window before a wet spent grain is going to start to microbially degrade. Got it. So that co-location there helps create, you know, again, an immediate shelf-stable option. Um, But the same with the bourbon industry. They historically, at smaller scale, spent grains were fine to go into some local livestock operations. But there was already intermittency in their ability to pick it up on time, et cetera. And so when they've scaled up, you know, these things are broken down and they have, you know, 40 million tons of spent grains per year. And, you know, they're trying to dry that down to 10%. We show up and pipe it right into us and we turn it into a lot of valuable stuff we can keep much closer to home. And from a business model perspective, are are those types of suppliers of waste even willing to pay you to take it from them? Or is it more of just like a, please like take this off our hands for free? Like, how does that work? So perfect setup because those two industries very different, right? The um, Over time, the ethanol industry has increased its sophistication and they do have revenue mm. from their co-products. And so a little bit different there. They see this as very high value, but those products have existing value. In the bourbon industry, they're actually going in the completely opposite direction or paying increasing uh, what they call tippage fees to get rid of this stuff. So, you know, and then brewers, you know, beer brewers is, is sort of in the middle. You know, it depends. In some places there's established relationships, but there's still uh, spent grains from brewing beer that ends up in landfill. Mm-hmm. And so you have a potential there for tipping fees. When you get into food waste, pre-consumer, where we're already regulatorily approved, Mm. there is some opportunity there for revenue depending on the co-product. And then the sort of granddaddy of them all is post-consumer food waste. Mm. And, you know, we're getting there, meaning we still have some regulatory hurdles before that's on the map, but there's huge tipping fees currently being paid as this stuff gets carted off and unfortunately usually lags That'll be interesting to track by by industry or by kind of sector, as you noted. I think some 
especially as there's maybe more competition for this stuff in the future as other folks figure out different ways to use it in a good way like you are, maybe they'll be, you know, maybe they'll start actually charging. But in other areas, I imagine that the sustainability pressure of, of figuring out how to ensure that waste doesn't end up in a landfill will will be a positive boon to you all. Will there be a lot of opportunities to make money on the front end and not just on the back end of selling products? Yeah, but I'm going to bring it back to New York to kind of add a little nuance there. Please, yeah. No, because it's it's really... What you have right now is strange, right? So New York produces 5,000 tons of organics waste per day. And then, you know, in many ways, their composting program, you know, I'm just outside in Jersey City, I've really gone deep on the problem here and, and the advantages of it. But when you think about the capacity, you know, to send this anywhere, you mm-hmm. know, the, all these targets for reducing into landfill, they can't be met. Well, that's why it's going to West Virginia. So they, they all... The feel-good targets of reducing it by half, et cetera, are there, but everyone's exempt from having to deal with that unless there's a compliant facility within, you know, 35 miles. I forget the exact number. And um, so, yeah, I sort of digress from from how I was tying it to the previous point, but it's an infuriating problem. Everyone gets this very clear reaction when they hear about food waste. You know, we can't be put in this landfill. You know, Project Drawdown, I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. If you take their number three and number 57, it's two different ways of looking at food waste, including the landfill emissions. It's the number one cause of greenhouse, preventable greenhouse gas emissions in the world, you know, in the country. Low-hanging fruit, pun intended. (laughs) Right. But it's great to have robust regulation forcing businesses to do more with it or municipalities. But until the capacity is there, Everyone's got an out and you can almost defend them. You know, what are they going to do? Truck it, you know, that costs energy too. So it's, it's an infuriating thing that we're not, I think, addressing with a little bit more of a Manhattan project. Uh, Well, let's get this one done kind of mode. Yeah. Time to get some of your facilities out here and in and around New York City. (laughs) Absolutely. If we zoom out all the way, is the crux of the business model is most of the revenue generation coming on the back end of the sale of, of products after the waste processing, or is it really a mix of both? We've always assumed, you know, let's let the tippage fees be gravy, mm. and we focused on the markets. Yeah. And so, yes, it's after the fact. And especially because where you were going with that is that these will become more and more, in a more sane world when it comes to organic waste, these will become competitive markets where better systems like ours may start to compete for these things so the cost may go up. Right. And so we don't want to tether our business model to that side of it. The products are valuable enough on the output side. Uh, and we continue to discover even more, you know, deeper and deeper benefits. So yeah, it's all about the revenue on the output side. And when you think about and put my investor hat on here and push a bit. When you think about the business as a whole, what do you feel like, whether it's IP or something else, what do you feel like is the most defensible component of the business? Like let's imagine a wonderful situation in which everyone's trying to do this in 10 or 15 years. What is the most distinguishing kind of component of the, whether it's the tech or the approach that that you feel like has a moat? That's a tough one because there's a lot. But if you think, one of the areas I think I would put near the top of the list is the pre-treatment of incoming feedstock. Hmm. And so everyone, well, not everyone, but I think fermentation has had a, a resurgence you know, maybe first at the sort of household level in the last 10 years, but then at scale as well. Hard to really overstate how critical of a process that is and how valuable that can be. And there's a lot of of different dials you can turn there, but it goes beyond that. So, you know, we actually worked with 
a prestigious uh, research, applied science research group that we were partnered with out of Europe on an international project. This goes back some years. Mm. And we were working with an agricultural co-product, but they had a very woody, what we call lignocellulosic rich co-product that was still being burned constantly because it had no use. And we did an R&D project on this and essentially produced a bacterial and fungi mix that transformed this waste from 2% protein to over 20% protein and made it completely viable for the black soldier fly. Got it. And so that's just one example when you think about the you know, various ways that you can optimize. And that's really the tip of the iceberg because you can pre-treat it and get a more efficient bioconversion. That's great. You can pre-treat it and get you know, additional benefits in the quality of the larva outputs. Mm. And you can do the same with FRAS. And so we also work with formulating or really, you know, a sophisticated mixing of different co-products to get better performance and also tweak for results. So Understood. I feel that that's a really a powerful area. Enzymes alone can create millions times more catalysis in the feedstock, making the nutrition more available, you know, we've still got fungi bacteria in that mix, getting your moisture right, you know, anaerobic, aerobic. Mm. So there's a lot that can go on in just the pretreatment alone that could certainly be protectable. Yeah, that's a differentiated level of expertise for sure. For sure. Flipping it over, you know, we, we're sort of dancing, you know, insects are a biotechnology laboratory. I mean, every feedstock trial we do, every production run we do, there is a teeming world of microbes at work. The black soldier fly is actually the, well, there's a key area of antimicrobial research now, uh, antimicrobial peptides, they're called, mm. and um, fairly novel, but insects, you know, present them in abundance. And the black soldier fly is the, has the largest number of them of any invertebrate on the planet. And these are potential antibiotic replacers. There's all sorts of different benefits to feeding them to animals. So again, you know, when you get into the layers of something protectable, you know, the right context, the right production, you know, mixes that increase the AMPs, you know, how, you know, there's a whole kind of series of ways that you can come up with novel benefits and how they're applied and bring those to a process, you know, protect them from a process level, trade secrets as well. So there's, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> we actually have been much more collaborative than most. Interesting. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've sort of recognized that there is, uh, you know, there's a lot that could be protected and that's a strategy, but we've seen that that also walls you off from a very, you know, expansive areas of collaboration and learning in an industry that is right now to call us in direct competition with other companies sort of mismatch with the problems we can address and the amount of waste out there. Yeah. I think that's pretty typical to climate tech firms where the overarching goal is combating climate challenges. There's a, a level of, in, of collaboration inherent to that in and of itself. And many of these solutions are fundamentally playing in relatively nascent industries where there's so much room for industry growth where it's like, would you rather fight for your small share of the existing pie or help grow the pie overall in collaboration with other people? So it's interesting to track how that shows up in a lot of different areas, whether it's this or direct air capture or something entirely else. <laughs> so, I mean, those are much more high-tech dependent solutions though. And so I kind of understand that. But for us, you can get off, the industry really looked at a lot of off-the-shelf technology and waste management and agriculture. 
And there's custom development going on, and there's been a lot of things in like specialized areas like breeding, LED lights, and what have you. But to your point, if you think about where we are now and, and the available feedstocks and markets, you know, we're the rubber's meeting the road in a fantastically valuable circular process. Mm-hmm. But we've got billions of tons of proven organics, including the manure around the world, that can go into you know, in future projects that are, let's say, have a different business model, different funding structure, we can take that into biodiesel and fertilizer. You know, we can remediate waste biosolids from, we've talked to folks from wastewater treatment plants for years, you know, and so the amount of use cases for this at scale at the municipal level, after industry gets, you know, gets us off the ground funding and, and supplying there, there's just a lot of terrain to cover to, to be the jack of all trades, yeah. You know, so I think it's just always made sense to us that, you know, comparing notes, you know, look at the Linux ecosystem. You got many, many, many billions of dollars in wealth and profits created out of what's foundationally a shared edifice of, you know, technology there. So, well, well, we've used the, or you've used the too many aces uh, term, which I like. I think I, I imagine that for you all, that is also, I mean, both huge opportunity and challenge. I'd love to get your perspective on, if you think about Shuffle Farms in 2023, I have a two-part question, is what's next and, and kind of what are the big challenges that you're thinking about a lot as you think about growing over the next year or two? And I can imagine that, you know, choosing what of all these different potential opportunities and paths to go factors into that, but I, uh, I won't put the cart before the horse. <laughs> well, we are... In two separate tracks, we are really focused on a large-scale project that we're very advanced in in terms of developing and finalizing funding for that specific project is well underway. Mm. And we're putting blinders on, if you will, when we've when we've locked in on a feedstock and we've trialed that out, got the performance where we want, we've got our engineering designs, that's sort of a rein in all the aces and get focused on getting to execution there. Mm-hmm. But simultaneously, you know, I mentioned Oregon, our innovation center, the relationships we built there, the interest level in in us developing both the company foundation and a project there. So this is the core, right? Mm-hmm. The company itself, the value, the people, the know-how, et cetera. So we've launched a separate raise to incubate more of the corporate side. That's our Reg D that we've got out there now because we just want to, we don't want to leave. We're not trying to do it all. We've actually learned and seen some companies that did exactly that. And they literally spread around the globe before they'd even had a a full-scale facility that was consistently running for years and trying to be, you know, the IP wizards and and protect everything and develop equipment. So we're not trying to do all of that at once, but there is a lot more that we can do. We're already researching. I mentioned the, the NSF research. We've got a lot of local research going on out in Oregon with universities and farms in the area. We're super, super passionate about the frass. Mm-hmm. We're co-located on the farm there with the Soil Food Web, which is a pioneering composting organization founded by Elaine uh, Ingham many years ago. So we kind of have all the pieces of this really beautiful bioregional picture going on out there. Yeah, nice mosaic. Exactly. So we're growing the team and continuing to take the research forward and expand on that end of it with no shortage of willing collaborators. And then we're doing research local to the large project we're building in the middle of the country. So we've got university partners there and 
tapping into their soil health wizards and some of their folks on the on the animal side. But really, you know, if you think about two different minds, you know, it's one in one sense we're still, you know, establishing terrain and that too many aces and, and a new field and continuing to bring in capital. But on the other, we're here ready to operationalize a very large scale facility. So we're balancing those two as we speak. That answers for me definitely like kind of where you're headed in 2023. We're interested to still push on the the challenges piece of the question. What keeps you up at night? What could, uh, if we had to do the pre-mortem of what would make this not work? In a word, maybe commoditization. <laughs> if you get into a really circular mindset and you bring biodiversity to the table and, and the clarity there, I mean, we haven't even talked about the loss of insects going on out there because of the way we do things. But if you bring that all the way down to like nutrient density and health outcomes in properly rebuilt soils, I think that there is, you know, should, in, in theory, if, if the markets were looking at all of these, you know, pieces, there's really no obstacles. This makes too much sense. It's too aligned, if you will, with the biomimicry, essentially, and it continues to open up new vistas of value. But that's my perspective. That's not the real world market, right? So what's the biggest obstacles? You know, it really, it's, it's been a slow development up till now. And, you know, if you look at, I mentioned plant-based and cellular ag, you know, they have unit costs in the five figures and they've got billions and billions piled up. We've pulled in as an industry less than $2 billion. It's less clear that you can, you know, control and, and the space. And so capital's been slower and we got a lot of work still to take us to infrastructure scale. So we've got to mind our P's and Q's in terms of doing our best to bring down costs and bring efficiency and scale. The interest is, it's years in the making. I mean, there's so much interest out there. But, you know, when you're conditioned by super cheap, artificially cheap, monocultured feed ingredients, yeah. you know, and, yeah. corn in one word. Yeah, corn, soy. I mean, and, you know, it's just the reality, you know, that the looking at ecosystem services, looking at these extended models, I mean, we're working on the the LCA, but the further it goes, the better everything looks for us. When you start to get into the competing products and the whole, you know, how much petroleum energy goes into monocultural, you know, monocultural soy and corn. Man, that'd be a good podcast for another time. It's kind of like the... Yeah, just the corn podcast, history of corn in the U.S. and how we uh, created industries to use all of the corn that got grown because we just had to create entire markets around it to ingest it. I think that goes back to Nixon. But the, the succinct answer to your question is my idealism and my system's view of why this is such a no-brainer is not market reality when you're building infrastructure. And so we we still need to continue to tell the story and to un have, you know, capital needs to understand it's going to get a return. And we completely okay with that. But the niches where the, the premium pricing that we, you know, command as an industry are interested, they need to see scale and then yeah. maybe some, some downward pressure. I just don't like the whole race to the bottom commodity. I don't accept that as the right framing for what we do. But yeah, that's really it. I think it's um, those are obstacles and and market adoption and and then you know managing growth. That's another piece, right? Yeah, you know we're doing a few different things and helping to grow the industry, doing some research as well as building at scale. And so it's an important on the execution level to manage your growth and bring the team along. And um, so we're focused on all that. We're ready for all that. We were eating our wheaties. Yeah, no, it's a very common. I see it frequently 
probably in any industry, climate, especially where there's a lot of hardware and infrastructure that needs to get built. But yeah, that that tension between partners and buyers, suppliers want to see scale. They want you to be able to ingest scale. Investors to build the infrastructure that that scale would require want to see revenue or proof or certain amount of capital raised. And uh, yeah, that could be tricky, but uh, I'm excited to see you all tackle it successfully. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, again, there's a, you, you described it very well, but I do think right now that if, if you, the amount of years that we've been at this, you know, that there's no shortage of, yeah, I think that process is really, I'm stammering and I'll just throw in COVID as the kind of other, COVID was a, a blessing and a curse. And obviously it was out of the context of the rest of humanity. Yeah. Food resiliency really took off. So I think that gave us a, a, that bolstered us. But I do think that since we are aiming to be at infrastructure scale, yeah, there was just some quirkiness and clunkiness to supply chains and to big investments of, of the scale that we're talking about. But yeah, we've got an exciting couple of years. I mean, a lot of folks see us as, you know, getting to a half a million tons as an industry by 2030. Mm. So we've got billions of infrastructure to build around the world to get there. So we'll, we'll stay busy. Yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it get built and seeing it in person. It's a good opportunity to, to, I always like to offer sort of the call to action, you know, for folks listening in, who are the types of people that you want to hear from? Where are some good places to follow along with the work that you're doing and, and keep tracking the story outside of this conversation? Absolutely. So chipulfarms.com is a perfect place to start. You know, lots of bits of our story there over over years and what we're doing and plenty of content to give you a better feel for it. And also a recent, I mentioned before, a Reg D 503C raise. We've just launched for $10 million. We're trying to expand the family of investors, accredited investors who are interested in coming along for the ride. And we invite you to join us. Uh, we think it's a, a compelling opportunity. But yeah, I, I do think, you know, one thing I like to... I do really take a long-term view. We take a long-term view. And um, so when I'm you know, talking to a broader audience and you hear about food waste and what have you, I think that, you know, I mentioned before, we'll get to the compost act, you know, et cetera. We'll get to a point where all of that's coming into our systems or similar composting or other systems in the future. Mm -hmm. And the real key is going to be people for separation. So pay attention to your waste. It's not waste. It's nature understands that. And that's been a mantra of ours for years. And, and that's really built our opportunity right now. Mm. But I think that, you know, when we're going to the blue bin or the trash can or what have you, that simple act of understanding what's what, it, you know, it's happened in other countries to some extent. And I, I envision a future where consumers are probably going to go a lot faster than municipalities in the city of New York when they demand to have their material better handled. But yeah, it's it's exciting to think about those things as resources, and I think it connects us. And not to get too deep, uh, but <laughs> that do. really, I think, you know, the, the separation of us from our food, from waste, you know, all of that, that little gap that, you know, is a big, big part of why things that make sense lag. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's like 100 years ago, you saw you, well, maybe, you know, 150, let's say, you lived in the town, you saw the livestock, you saw the waste, you kind of saw where your water was coming from. If there was some level of water treatment, you probably passed that plant. You saw all this stuff and now we don't. And that's uh, in an indirect and direct way, a big driver of why challenges or inefficiencies or some absurdities as we gestured at can persist. It's because no one's really 
confronted with it on a day-to-day basis. A hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah, and that's, that's the opportunity. And that's also the invitation. I mean, nobody, I'm not, you know, big on, Hey, we're, we're screwing everything up, go out and feel guilty. But since there is so much of an energy of urgency around things, then, you know, just, it's interesting how much, you know, is, is happening right around you. And, you know, maybe it's a tomato plant for you, but for us, it's let's, we want to be, uh, helping out with the waste and the landfills and, and, um, yeah. So Chipotle Farms, we think we got a great story. We think we really are uh, bringing a lot to the table. And we think we can do a lot more with this wonderful resource we call food waste and, and organics waste. So we're eager to bring that story and bring in more folks to the story, especially like you said, because there's uh, competing narratives out there. And we think this is uh, you know something important that's going to play a huge role in the future at infrastructure scale and also to farms and, and on down the chain. So. Long live the black soldier fly. Here we go. <laughs> One final question for me. Maybe we'll do a rapid fire. You know, how do you measure success beyond revenue and growth over the next one, three, and five years? Like, what are some some ambitious targets that you just love to see? Is it the size of a plant? Is it the level of waste that you're ingesting? When we talk again in, in a few years, like, or sooner than that, but, you know, what would you be excited to reflect on and be like, oh, yeah, we went out and did that? Well, beyond revenue and moving product, you know, Antibiotic reduction. This is one of the ones that keeps me up at night. And, you know, the, the fact that we already know that we have this tool that can potentially replace or eliminate, depending on the context, antibiotic use in animals. You know, a quick little history. 77, the FDA published a warning about antibiotics in the livestock and the creation of resistance. It took them 40 years <laughs> to then say something a little, you know, start to put some caps on that, what have you. And in the meanwhile, we have something on pace to eclipse cancer by 2050 and cost us $150 trillion cumulatively in healthcare costs. And so, you know, rebuilding biomes from soil to guts, et cetera, is synonymous with getting away from the excessive use of antibiotics. If we bring a feed product that can help, you know, farmers, livestock farmers not need those things, that would be a metric that would just, I would be over the moon. It's a really big target for us. And then a final one, I would just say uh, any, maybe multi-year, but any healthy soils data from our research on frass impacting nutrient density, you know. Love it. Yeah. Anything, you know, we're, we just joined a new research uh, trial with lettuce out in California with lettuce, uh, tomatoes, and melons. But any of the above, you know, it's one thing to grow them successfully, but when you see that magnesium up 49% from healthy soils, that's a, a stack of value that some people aren't even looking at, but it's a big part of our food system we need to rebuild. Wide-reaching conversation. Thanks so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Look forward to checking in again in a bit, and I'll definitely keep tabs on what you all are up to. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate your time. It was fun. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.